Let's pray one more time together before we begin. Father, it is such a great, great privilege that it would be said of us that we know the Lord. And that is really our, the sum total of our existence. You say, let not any man boast in his might or his wisdom or his wealth, but that we are to boast in this, that we know you. Father, we just pray that today you would distinguish us with the knowledge of God and that you would show us what great lengths you went to so that you can bring us into a covenant knowledge of who you are through the person and work of your son, Jesus. And so, Lord, remind us today of how important it is for us to cultivate the knowledge of God, to grow in our knowledge of you, to grow in our understanding of who you are, your attributes, your work, your mind revealed to us in Scripture. Father, we just pray that you would give us the capacity to have a heart that is illuminated to these great new covenant privileges that we have that are ours in Christ Jesus. Be glorified now. Help us, Lord, to understand and to discern your word and to grow in your truth and to apply that truth in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, the new covenant is a covenant that is explicitly redemptive in nature, meaning the new covenant is all about salvation. So right off the bat, let me just say that I will take issue with many Reformed uh, coven covenantal theologians, many Reformed theologians in general, because many of the confessions or the catechisms, or many of the covenantal understandings of great men say that this covenant is for us and for our children. And what they mean by that is that children are not saved, but that they are in covenant with God nonetheless, because you are in covenant with God as a believer. The problem with that is, is that that is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the new covenant is. Nobody is in the new covenant that needs salvation. You are in the new covenant because you are saved. The blood of Christ, the merits of Christ, the atonement of Christ, the redemption of Christ has been applied to your account. That is how you are in the new covenant. The new covenant is not a promise of what ought to be or what could be. The new covenant is a reflection of the reality of what is. That you are, as it says, the one who has the law of God written on your heart. You are the one who, is, who has God as his God. Maybe more, most explicit of all, look at verse 12. 
You are the one to whom he has been merciful to your iniquities. You are the one whose sins God will remember no more. My friends, you sit here today not because this is a promise for you, but because this is the reality in which you now live. Your sins have been taken away as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. The new covenant, therefore, is not strictly eschatological, meaning the new covenant is not simply looking forward to the final day, the final judgment, to heaven, to the new heavens, to the new earth. It is not awaiting its fulfillment, but it is fulfilled now, here and now, in us. The only thing it is waiting for is its consummation, its perfection, its completion. But do not be mistaken. You are in the new covenant now. These benefits belong to you. If you are born again by the Spirit of God, what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is that the Spirit himself has done a work in your heart. He has written upon the tablet of human hearts his law. By the instrumentality of the Spirit, God has, by the instrumentality of His Spirit upon your heart. And that language is synonymous with the new birth. To have the law written upon the heart is to be born again, is to be spiritually circumcised, which Scripture over and over and over equates with the new birth. It begins with a supernatural work of the Spirit of God wrought in the heart of God's people. That's the way that it works. And so we begin with that point, a point of the new covenant efficacy, that the new covenant is perfectly effectual. If you are in the new covenant, that means that you will remain a new covenant member into eternity. That's why it's called the eternal covenant. As a matter of fact, you remember if you go back to verse 9 right here of this letter, you remember what he says, that this is actually part and parcel of the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. It is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Words that you, as a new covenant believer, will never, ever hear. That God no longer cares for you. That is the major distinction. Is that you are inextricably bound to God in a communion bond, a covenantal bond with God that can never be broken. It can never be severed. This is what's so beautiful about the new covenant, as we will see. But let's begin on that very point. Number one, that we need to see the need for the new covenant, the need for the new covenant. And to do this, I want to begin by quoting you something out of Jeremiah's context. Because, of course, 
Hebrews chapter 8 is quoting Jeremiah 31. Well, Jeremiah in his day is looking at a time where there is the need for a more superior covenant. You remember, the author of Hebrews points this out. If you go back to verse 7 right here in the chapter, he says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, the conditional clause there is assuming that it is not faultless. In other words, there is fault, but look at, look at, the, look at the fault. There would have been no occasion sought for a second for finding fault with them. See, it's the people that had gone astray, exactly as verse 9 says. Matter of fact, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 22, he uh, expresses this very thing about the knowledge of God, that the people had fallen away from knowing the Lord. He says it in striking language. He says in Jeremiah 4.22, For my people are foolish. They do not know me, or they know me not. They are stupid children (laughs) and have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but they do but to do good, they do not know. And so they lacked a moral component because they lacked the spiritual component. They didn't have a moral life because they didn't have a spiritual life. They couldn't live out the commandments of God because they were not in covenant community with God, at least not in terms of the new covenant. They had no saving knowledge of God. They had all the commands They had all the statutes, all the stipulations. They had the law. They had a mediator. They had a covenant, but they did not know God. And that is because the old covenant could not provide what the new covenant provides, which is the power to change. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 just to see the the awesome reality of that change. Just to see that what the old covenant could not do, the new covenant does. Beginning in in, in, in verse 4, it says, "This This confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, that's the law, the old covenant, of the, uh, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills. Watch this. But the Spirit, referring to the Spirit's work in the new covenant, gives life. If the ministry of death, that's the old covenant, in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For the ministry of condemnation has glory. That is the ministry of the Old Covenant. The ministry of the Old Covenant produced condemnation. But look at the ministry of the New Covenant. He says, much more does the ministry of righteousness, that's the ministry of the new covenant, abound in glory. So what is the ministry of, the new, of, of righteousness? It is the ministry of the Spirit of God in the new covenant that has the power to produce righteousness in you. The old covenant people of God did not have the power to obey, to be pleasing, to be acceptable, to be righteous. 
They needed God by a sovereign move of his spirit to make the people just, to make them righteous. And oh, how the people of God exemplified this in the Old Testament, that they were not righteous, that they quickly wavered in their commitment to the Lord. As a matter of fact, Judges chapter 2, verse 10 says that after Joshua and the generation of Canaan died, it says there arose a generation that did not know the Lord. That is how quickly Israel apostatized from one generation to the next. As soon as God stopped revealing himself in signs and wonders, then Israel begins a vicious cycle of forgetfulness where they would forget their covenant God, the God that had redeemed them out of the land of Egypt. The beauty of the new covenant is that if you are truly in the new covenant, you will not be abandoned by God like Israel was under the old covenant. You know, to show you this, turn to Hosea, Hosea chapter 4, uh, which is fast-forwarding some time after Exodus, obviously, but it is something of a contemporary with Jeremiah and that entire um, prophecy of Assyrian captivity and then later Babylonian captivity. But Hosea chapter 4 really shows us the symptomatic problem of the Old Covenant in the people of God who constantly kept forgetting God. Look at verse 1. And everything has to do with the knowledge of God, with the knowledge of the Lord, with knowing the Lord. Look at verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O you sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness, here it is, or knowledge of God in the land. You see that? They forgot God. And as a consequence to that, they began to suffer for it. So much so as the covenant stipulated. If you just read Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, God told Israel, this is what will happen if you turn your back on me. If you waver to the left or to the right. These are the curses that you will undergo. These curses will befall you if you breach the covenant. And sure enough, all of those terrible curses, I, I encourage you, go to Deuteronomy 28. Read the curses of what would transpire. They're awful. They're so awful that it resulted in cannibalism. That is how desperate and destitute and depraved and debased Israel eventually became. That parents were eating their own young. I know it's disturbing to hear. It's disturbing for me to say. But that is what happens when people deviate from the knowledge of God. There is no limit to the depravity that they can undergo. Things became really bad in Hosea's time. Look at verse 3 of Hosea 4. Environmental disaster transpired because of a breach of the covenant. Therefore, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea disappear. In other words, they began to see their environment changing. And this language is reminiscent of a, re a return back 
to the Genesis curse where the creation turned on man. Israel is undergoing the same type of edemic curse because they've forgotten God. Look at verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Uh, some people take that verse, say lack of vision, as to say you need to, be, you need to have an imagination in your spiritual life. That is not what this is talking about at all. It means that people lost the gospel. They lost the knowledge of who God is. They lost the capacity to know the difference between God and paganism. Look with me chapter 2 of Hosea to see that very thing. Verse 16, an astounding prophecy. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, this is Hosea 2.16, that you will call me Ishi and will no, no longer call me Bali. Now, what's going on behind the scenes of that verse is that Israel had so divulged into syncretism, the idea of mixing the worship of Yahweh and the worship of paganism, that they no longer had the ability to decipher between the two religions. <laughs> they were calling Yahweh Baal and Baal Yahweh. That's what they were doing. The outposts of worship for Israel had become citadels of idolatry, pagan worship. And why? Because they are being destroyed because they lack the knowledge of God. Go back to chapter 4, verse 6. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. Isn't that significant? The nation of Israel was to operate like a priest. They were to bring people to God. But because they lacked the knowledge of God, they did not know God anymore in a saving way, they had no ability to stand as evangelistic priests to the nation. They had no ability to bring people into true worship because their worship was so defiled. It's really remarkable. Remind you of any bad churches you might know about? They're so compromised. They're so deluded in their worship. They're so twisted in their doctrine. It doesn't even resemble Christianity anymore. It has become something. What it has become, nobody knows. And therefore, they're hardly able to even give the most basic, simple, saving gospel message. So this has great application for you and I. Of course, this uh, lack of the knowledge of God is also indicative of the fact that God allowed the nation to go into depravity. Look at Hosea chapter 9, and then from there, <clears throat> we'll make our way to the book of Romans. But Hosea chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, shows us what happens when the knowledge of God is rejected. He says, Ephraim was a watchman of my God, a prophet, and yet the snare of a bird catcher is in all of his ways. In other words, they are very easily ensnared. And there is only hostility in the house of, of his God. They have gone deep 
into depravity, as in the days of Gibeah. He will, he will remember their iniquity, and he will punish their sin. So God shows up to judge, and the judgment that befell Israel right before this time was horrific. Now, to see a parallel of this, look with me to the, the contemporary prophet Amos. Amos chapter 4, verse 1, because we're building the case that the new covenant comes in as an answer to the covenant people of God who fell into a cycle of apostasy, of forgetfulness, where they rejected the knowledge of God. And uh, Amos chapter 4, verse 1 tells us just how bad things really got. And I have to explain this a little bit, but look at, uh, look at uh, Amos 4, verse 1. Now, this is an interesting, almost an, a, a sadly satirical, almost sarcastic expression, but uh, the background is important. Amos 4, 1, hear this, you cows of Bashan. How many of you chuckle when you read that verse? <laughs> he says, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring now that we may drink. What's going on there? Why is the prophet addressing the cows of Bashan, a reference to the women in Israel? Why does he call them that? He calls them that because they have become like cattle. They have become irresponsive. They become like dumb beasts. It's very graphic. You read the prophets, the prophets are full of this graphic imagery. What is the prophet trying to bring uh, to mind? What is the imagery that he's trying to convey? What he's saying is that the women of Israel had become, and of Judah had become so materialistic that the only thing they cared about was their ease, was their leisure, was their pleasure, was their, their drunken wantonness, that on the way to fulfilling all of their materialistic and sensual affinities, they ended up oppressing the poor and crushing the needy. Hosea tells them that they should weep instead. And the reason why this is important, of course, is because the irony of this is that Typically, it is the women who should be more emotionally sensitive to things. The women should be the ones leading the way, weeping and mourning for the sins of the people. But sadly, things in Israel had gotten so bad that the ladies were leading the way in this materialistic obsession with vanity, so much so that they were themselves numb, frozen, seared in conscience. They were irresponsive. Why? all because they forgot God, because they abandoned the knowledge of God. And this should not surprise us, because this is everywhere for us to see today. Now, let's go into Romans, Romans chapter 1. Of course, as we think about the suppression of the truth, as we think about abandoning the knowledge of God, we cannot but go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, this classic passage of what happens to a people when they abandon the knowledge of God. Verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. At a fundamental level, this is called natural theology, at a fundamental level, every human being on planet earth knows that there is a God, that there is a creator, and that they are accountable to Him. But this knowledge is not enough to save them 
sadly, only enough to condemn them. He says, for even though they knew God, that doesn't mean they knew God in a saving way. They knew God on this natural plane, but still they did not honor Him or uh, did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, ironically. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. It shouldn't be a surprise, therefore, to find the prophet saying, you've abandoned the knowledge of God and that what comes after that is a series of moral indictments. Because what happens in the mind is what will ultimately manifest itself with your deeds. It's a, it's a very, very straight line from the mind through the heart to the hands and to your lifestyle. The old covenant could not turn rebellious Israel to obey and to love and to treasure God. What was needed was a new covenant. Go back to Hebrews with me and read verse 11 again because that is our focus. It is astounding in the face of all of this apostasy and sin and rejection of God to find a promise, a covenantal promise in Jeremiah like this, verse 11. They shall and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. It is only in the new covenant that the knowledge of God becomes a great supposition. That the knowledge of God becomes a true salvific knowledge, so much so that you'd no need of educating your fellow citizen, your brother, which is to say the other covenant members of the new covenant, to know the Lord. To know the Lord. Now we'll get to some of the, we'll get to some of the, um, the implications of that, because there are some bad implications that you can follow. There are some bad conclusions that you can make on the basis of those words. And I'll show you in a minute that we do need teachers today. We do need to teach one another, but not in the sense of what is being said here. Because the old covenant could not remove rebellious Israel's heart, a new covenant is needed, or the old covenant, a new covenant is needed. Jeremiah envisions a time when, like himself, who is part of that believing remnant, remember if I could show you a big circle and a little circle within it, what that represents is that within the broad community of the old covenant, inside of that covenant community was a remnant community, was a believing community, was an elect community, according to Romans, Romans chapter 11, verse 7. The elect obtained the promises and the rest were hardened, as Paul says in Romans eleven seven. 7. 
So Jeremiah represents part of the remnant, part of the elect, part of those who did know God in this way. The difference is, is that in the new covenant, if you are a member of the new covenant, it is universal and exhaustive. Everyone is like Jeremiah. Everyone has the law of God written on the heart. Everyone knows the Lord. The Spirit is at work in them. That's what it means. Look at verse 10 of uh, Hebrews 8. That's what it means to know God. It means that you've had His laws put into your mind, inscribed onto your heart, that God is now your God and that you are now His people. Because this knowledge is based on the inscription of the law of God, it does not lead us to antinomianism. Far from that. Turn with me to 1 Peter just for a couple of... um, a couple of verses there to show you that the Spirit's work in the new covenant leads to a holy knowledge of God. It's not just an academic knowledge of God. It's not just a philosophical knowledge of God. It's not just an intellectual knowledge of God. There are plenty of people who know a lot about God, dare I say, who have PhDs about the study of God and who are in hell right now who at one point had a gospel, who at one point made a profession of faith, who at one point had everyone convinced that they were experts in theology, but who were internally bankrupt, who did not have a life that mirrored their profession. First Peter tells us that we are just as obligated as the old covenant saints not to be sophists, but to be saints, not just to know a bunch of stuff, but to live in a certain way. Look at what he says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. That is, before you knew God. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all of your behavior because it is written. And then he quotes an old covenant citation out of Leviticus. You shall be holy for I am holy. This is what life in the new covenant looks like right here. And then jump down to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. He says, therefore, putting aside all malice, All deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word. I want to ask you a question today and get very honest with yourself and before God. Do you long for the Word of God? Is there ever a longing where you feel it in your bones? I have not been in the Word. I have been neglecting my Bible. It sits over there on the corner, on the shelf, on the desk. It's been days and days and days, and I haven't opened the Bible. I have no desire to study the Bible. If you have no desire to be a disciple, which is the Greek word mathetes, which just simply means to learn. If you have no desire for the knowledge of God, be honest and stop lying to people around you that that desire is just not there. 
You have a desire for other things, a desire for career, a desire for marriage, a desire for a certain status in life, a desire for a certain career, a desire for a certain standard of living. But when it comes to the knowledge of the Holy One, you are devoid of passion. That is not a good indication for your spiritual life. And I am not suggesting at all that you walk around all day with this unbridled zeal and excitement. Sometimes I have to crawl into my study. And I have to, like Paul says, I have to buffet my body, make it my slave, and drag it into the desk because it rather just kick back especially on a beautiful Saturday when everyone else is out there enjoying a beautiful day. Sometimes looking ahead at hours and hours that you're in, in studying the Word of God is, I know I'm supposed to be super spiritual as a pastor, but sometimes it is like Paul, like uh, John MacArthur has said, it is the tyranny of Sunday. And sometimes I feel that tyranny. So I understand that sometimes you don't feel like studying the Word of God or learning about God. But somewhere in the citadel of your soul, there had better been or there had better be some points of passion for the Word of God. There had better be a longing. You had better have a childlike character with the Word of God. There better be a dependence. You know, like a child, like a baby, like an infant. They don't get the milk, they suffer, and ultimately can die. They need to be fed, and they'll let you know that they need to be fed. Jessica will tell you. But do you ever, like that, like a baby, get in touch with your soul and say, God, I long for your word. I need it so bad. Turn off the TV, turn off the internet, put away the games, put away the video games, put it all away. Shut off your cell phone if you have to. Close off the media. Open up the book. Paul tells Timothy, think over what I tell you, Timothy, and the Lord will give you understanding in all things. That is saying if you do the work, illumination will come. And that is what it looks like to be in the new covenant. You don't need anybody to impart that illumination to you. If the Spirit resides within you, you have it. So let me bring up some aspects of the nature of the new covenant. So we go from the need for the knowledge of God in the new covenant to the nature of the new covenant knowledge of God. Number one, it's that the knowledge of God that, that uh, is being spoken of here in Hebrews is immediate. So write that down. Immediate means there is no need for mediation. No one needs to become your broker of the knowledge of God, your mediator. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2 for a, po a possible parallel passage to this very phenomenon because I want to set it up and build it up and build it up and then I want to qualify some things that I'm not saying, okay? 1 John chapter 2, beginning of verse 27. As for you, plural, talking about the 
all the believers in the churches, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. Same territory. But his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie. And just as it has taught you, you abide in him. This is, this is amazing. Uh, this is amazing heart surgery that's going on here. John is coming in like a surgeon of the soul, explaining to us the dynamics of what happens, the components of the spiritual life of the believer, that we have received an anointing. What is that anointing? Well, some would say it is the Holy Spirit. Some would say it is, no, 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 it is the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, how can you separate the two? <laughs> so it is the Spirit's work in the life of the believer. And what does it do? It teaches us. Notice that. His anointing teaches you about all things. Now, does that mean the Spirit teaches you how to do um, geometry? <laughs> no, of course not. That's not what he's talking about here. This is, all, this is all covenantal language that's being spoken here by John. It is literally the people of God who have the knowledge of God residing in them through the new covenant so that at a fundamental level, we do not need to try and convert one another to the truth. I mean, do you do that on a practical level? Do you come Sundays um, and think, well, what member of the church today am I going to uh, convert to the gospel? <laughs> of course not. What member of the church am I going to try to convince that he needs to come to know the Lord? <laughs> of course not. Unless there's an indication that that person is not in fact in the new covenant. We know that at a fundamental level, we have the truth residing within ourselves. We have a God-given discernment. As Jesus says of his sheep, the voice of a stranger they will not listen to. You have discernment. I knew a wonderful uh, lady that uh, she was actually, she took Greek with us. My wife and I were doing a Greek class many, many years ago. And she's actually the best student in the whole class. She was saved in a Mormon church. Because those Mormons kept reading out of the King James Bible. <laughs> so she kept going home and reading more of the King James Bible. And the King James Bible saved her. And then she kept going back to the Mormon church. And then she started going, huh? The Book of Mormon and the Bible, they don't match. What's going on here? What was going on there was that she had an anointing from the Holy One that taught her about all things. No one needed her to teach her anything. She knew the truth. And she got out of that house of heresy. And the Spirit of God led her out of there and into orthodoxy. That is what the Spirit does. That is what the new covenant is all about. And it is immediately imparted to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. The second thing is, is that this knowledge of God is not only immediately imparted to us, it is also intimate in nature. Look at the text back in uh, Hebrews 8, 11. They shall not teach 
everyone, his fellow citizen, and everyone, his brother, saying, know the Lord. So we don't need anyone to teach us how to know the Lord. We know the Lord in the new covenant. For, watch this, for all will know me. Now that language of know me, what is that talking about? Dear friends, it is speaking of a personal, intimate, the most intimate type of communion bond that we can have with God. When God wants to be intimate with someone, He covenants together with them. And the new covenant reminds us of all of God's affections for us. If you keep a finger there in Hebrews chapter 8 and look with me at Hosea 11, or let me just read it to you, Hosea 11 verse 8, looking forward now, kind of like Jeremiah, looking forward now to the, the time when God would redeem his wayward people, we get this expression of the heart of God that we realize in the new covenant. Hosea 11 verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? Even though she's been disobedient. Remember, he's speaking about the remnant within Ephraim. He says, how can I surrender you, O Israel? I would say he's speaking about the true Israel of God. The Israel within the Israel. He says, how can I make you like Admar? How can I make you like Zebuim? Less desirable peoples. My heart is turned over within me. I want you to take this verse and to apply it to yourself because this has direct application to you in the new covenant. Understand that this is God saying about you and about I that for him, his heart is turned over within him. All of his compassions, he says, are kindled. I will not execute my fierce wrath. He goes on to say, I will not come in wrath what is this referring to? But the grace, the sovereign grace that is brought to us in the new covenant. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah chapter 4 goes on to make a striking, uh, makes a, there's a striking text that if you skip over it, it almost seems out of place, but it is not. It is not. And I don't know if I'll be able to find it. It's just a fleeting passing. Yeah, there it is. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 27, after saying that they have no knowledge of God, they are stupid children, <laughs> they are completely wayward, and then he talks about this destruction and that destruction, and he's going to destroy this, he's going to destroy that, and then you get verse 27, which I looked at the Hebrew very carefully, and the NASB has preserved the Hebrew text rightly. There are other translations that are not preserving it rightly. And the reason why they don't do that is because it doesn't seem to flow with the context, but it does. Verse 27, thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not execute a complete destruction. What I'm arguing is that that is preparing us for the new covenant. Because Jeremiah does it over and over and over. Chapter 5, verse 10. Go up through her vine rows and destroy, but do not execute a complete destruction. And he does it over and over in the book of Jeremiah until we understand who it is that he will be gracious to. 
He will be gracious to those that he is going to forge a new covenant. He's going to show mercy in a new way so that not all of his people perish. Not all of his people are destroyed. God is so intimate in this new covenant bond with us. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 24, in the same breath of the new covenant, he says, I will set my eyes on them to do good. Jeremiah 24, 6. And I will bring them again to this land. And I will build them up and not overthrow them. I will plant them and pluck them up. I will give them a new heart to know me. Does that sound familiar? I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God. It's referring to the same idea as the new covenant prophecy of Jeremiah 31. This is total intimate communion with God. The next thing is, or the final thing is, is that it is an indiscriminate knowledge of God. Look back at the text with me in Hebrews. It is an indiscriminate knowledge of God. In other words, it has a universal application to all who are in the covenant. It says, from, he says, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. What does that mean? He's talking about short people, tall people? No. Not talking about short people, tall people. Well, them too. <laughs> They're all included too. But what the prophet is saying is that regardless of your stature, regardless of your station in life, regardless of your status, regardless of your gender, regardless of your status in society, from the least to them to the greatest of them, it's literally makros, megalos, where we get micro and mega. It's the, those that are considered among us as either insignificant or very significant in the community. Right? The knowledge of God is such that the janitor at the local maximum security prison down the street has as much access to the knowledge of God as the most prestigious seminary theologian in the world. That is the indiscriminate nature of the knowledge of God. And I think of Paul in Galatians chapter 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And he says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Heirs of the promise. The reason that's important is because of this final exhortation that I want to make for us. So you need to know that you are not secondary in this, uh, 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 this new covenant that God has given us. It is not ethnic Jews and then us. No, my dear friends, I am saying that if you go back with me to verse 8, and I taught this already, but that when the prophet said, I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, what I am arguing is that what the prophet was saying is that he would make a covenant with true Israel, with the true Hebrew, the true Jew. And I have a lot of ammunition for this too. 
I have a lot of arguments for this point because I think it's important for us to know that this is not a secondary application to us. Folks, this was speaking of the church. Jesus Christ came to reconstitute his people in the church. And therefore, what do we expect to find in the new covenant? What do we expect to find in the New Testament? Well, Romans chapter 9, verse 6 says that we are the true Israel, the Israel within Israel. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, the Apostle Paul makes it explicit. You are the true circumcision. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says we are the true descendants of Abraham. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says you are the chosen race. You are the ethnos of God. You are the royal priesthood. You are the holy nation. You are God's special people. And in Galatians chapter 6, verse 16, he says you are the Israel of God. The remnant within the broader people, that remnant is the one with whom God covenanted to make a new covenant whereby he will save all of his elect people from all time, past, present, and future. How do we apply this to our lives? Turn to Hebrews chapter 10, because bear in mind and keep me accountable that the book of Hebrews, as deep and elaborate of a covenantal work as it is, really has very basic applications. Remember that in chapter 13, the book of Hebrews is called a letter of encouragement, exhortation. That's what it is. And so how does this come home to us? The argument is from chapter 8 all the way to chapter 10. And so we get, we get to the exhortation at chapter 10, verse 22. You remember that the book of Hebrews really, I believe, it was an early sermon. An early sermon. And I'm encouraged by that because I don't do a lot of illustrations and I definitely don't do any jokes. And the book of Hebrews, if it is an early sermon, is devoid of jokes, <laughs> devoid of lengthy stories or, you know, you know uh, obsessing over the, the, the personality of the preacher. He is virtually invisible in this letter, right? Because he's not what's on stage here. It is the content. But the whole thrust of the application comes at the end or toward the end of chapter 10. Look at verse 22. There are three things. There is a threefold imperative to be true, to be steadfast, and to be committed to be true. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. In other words, no more fake religion. So much fake Christianity, don't you agree? So much fakeness in the church. So much superficial interaction in the church. So much of the putting on a good face, of the plastic smiles of the church, so much playing church in the church. Well, the exhortation that Hebrews is giving us is don't be fake. Be real. Draw near to God with sincerity of heart, full 
full assurance, he says. And also, be steadfast. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. I am telling you right now that the 21st century is going to unleash on us serious challenges to the Christian faith like we have never, ever seen before. I say that on a moral level. I say that on a technological level. I say that on a societal level. And though principles are the same, there are things coming upon this century that are going to take your breath away. You think gay marriage is bad. You wait where a postmodern culture goes from there. I tell you, unless God has great mercy on this country and exhibits great patience towards this country and sends forth a great revival in this country, we are headed somewhere where... Where? Well, we know that our God is sovereign. But now, I don't want to say now more than ever because that's cheesy. I mean, but now more than ever, we have to be staunch in the gospel. And I don't just pray that, I don't just say that as a preaching point. When he says, be steadfast, or excuse me, hold fast the confession, we've already looked at this before in chapter 4. What that word literally means is that you develop a stubborn refusal to move from the things that you believe. That's in the word. That's lexical. That's what it implies. It means, nope, not going to move. Not moving from this. The God, you are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. So, faith alone, Christ alone, by grace alone, and leave everything else alone. It means you develop a staunch resistance to heresy and compromise theologically. And then we are also to be committed. So we are to be true. We are to be steadfast. And lastly, very practically, we are to be committed. Look at verse 25 or 24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking or assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Oh, it's so beautiful. This is what new covenant life looks like. This is what the knowledge of God in the new covenant looks like. Our calling is to be faithful to it. Let's pray. Well, Father, uh, I echo the words of the Apostle Paul that says, we have, no, we have no adequacy of ourselves. We're not adequate. We don't have the necessary resources within ourselves, that is to say, in our own strength, in our own ingenuity, in our own spirituality. We need you to strengthen us. We need you to help us. Lord, we need you to protect us. We need you to keep us on the straight and narrow. And Father, we need you to help us to live out these new covenant realities, to long for the knowledge of God, to be true, to be sincere of heart, 
to be transparent with one another, even vulnerable, to be steadfast, to be immovable in the gospel, and to be committed in the church, that we would be committed to this place, Lord, as your people, because you have ordained that this is where we are to grow and we are to live out the the gospel-centered life. God, help us. Help us, Lord, to do that very thing, we pray. We know that our lives can either reflect your glory or, Lord, we can, we can contradict your glory by the way we live. And so we pray, God, help us to live consistently with the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.